Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll, we'll read starting in verse 16 here, here in a bit. Before I read, let me tell you, about 10 years ago, during the time of the Summer Olympics, the Sears department store, you remember Sears? Of course you remember Sears, right? You remember the Sears catalog? I act like I do. I don't. I just hear about it. <laughs> Sears department store ran a commercial, a video commercial that was showing a gymnastics vault that had gone terribly wrong. We would call this a fail if you're young, right? It's a failed gymnastics vault. To refresh your memory, because you may not be up to up to par on your vaulting uh, knowledge, the vault is the event, the event in gymnastics where the athlete runs down a 25-meter strip as fast as he or she possibly can, jumps onto like a trampoline, like an angled springboard, goes flying through the air towards a vaulting horse, pushes off the vaulting horse, does their fancy flippy thing, and then lands with grace and dignity and amazes us all, right? You remember the vault? It's my favorite event of gymnastics because of the incredible speed and the power and the height and the flying acrobatics, and I just always feel like maybe I'm going to see somebody just smash into the vault horse, but that would be sad. But from time to time, because of the internet, we know that this goes terribly wrong. Usually this involves a more amateur gymnast making some sort of mistake on the springboard and as a result, flying at incredibly high speeds into the vaulting horse rather than over the vaulting horse. Well, in 2006, Sears published a video, and I was very disappointed to learn that it was a fake video that had been doctored, but it's my illustration. I get to do this how I want. But the video that they showed on television was of an athlete running down, and as soon as he jumped on the springboard, the springboard like explodes, sending Russian gymnast Stefan Beltsky into the air. He goes way over the vault, beyond the landing area, and lands in the judge's table, smashing through the judge's table, right? And then, of course, he... You know, stands up, wipes like the computer off, and you know, does his gymnast salute, right, or whatever, whatever they do. But in the commercial, it, it pans over to a uh, a technician, maintenance kind of guy who's sitting beside the vault, and he he sees this event happen, and he looks down at his toolbox beside his chair, and he scoots it back behind the curtain, right. <laughs> Apparently, this is to make us buy tools, right? But I have to admit, I was disappointed to learn that it was, it was probably fake because it was such a wonderfully epic failure. It's a failure that I think illustrates our text this evening. It's a failure of missing the point. The whole point of the springboard is not to go flying through the air with the greatest of ease, but to fly into the vaulting horse and then up, up over it, right? It's designed to make him go up. 
is totally missing the point. Tonight, our text describes how we as Christians can be in the very same danger when it comes to our religion. We can get a lot of religion and miss the point. And what do you think the point is? Or who do you think the point is? Well, this is Colossians, so we know that the point is Christ. We are all, each of us is all, in danger of having lots of religion and missing Jesus. In my personal studies recently, I've been reminded of how we operate and live the Christian life in a climate of spiritual warfare. A climate of intense spiritual warfare that I think we underestimate. Because if we were to estimate it correctly, we would be much more on guard and more alert. We have, as you know, an enemy. An adversary, Satan, who is enraged about his defeat. And in his remaining moments of freedom, he has totally committed himself to disrupting the plans of his enemy, God. Satan rages against God. And there's nothing that brings Satan more joy than causing doubt, confusion, and distraction for God's people. You know, Ephesians 6 instructs us to take up the armor. Why? So that we may be on guard against what? The devil's schemes. We have an adversary who is scheming against us. And he has many different diabolical schemes, but our text tonight talks about schemes that church folk are prone to. Schemes that Satan uses to distract us from Christ. Satan uses even religion to distract us from Christ. That's right. You can bait fish with worms, you can bait ants with honey, and you can bait Christians with religion. Let's look at this text. We're going to read 16 through 23. I'll decide if I'm going to come back and preach it again next week. We'll see. 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring, of course, to the things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These things, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You've given it to us. 
Now give us the power that we need that it may come alive in us. You've used words to speak the creation into existence. You've used words to speak us and our spiritual lives into existence. Would you now provide the growth that you promise? Help us, O God, by your spirit. So let my words fall to the ground, blow away. They can be forgotten. We need nourishment from you. So we're looking to you and we're asking you, spirit work Overcome every weakness, every distraction, every sin, every failure, and every weakness that Christ would be glorified in our midst. Amen. Now, this is a longer passage, and so before I go much further, let's, let's try to, to do some big picture summarizing, right? Um, because we have to see that this is really the heart and center of the argument in Colossians. Remember, we've said that Paul wrote Colossians to help a group of Christians be on guard against a certain type of deceptive teaching. And the essence of that false teaching was that a Christian, that if a Christian really wanted to be spiritually full, if you want to be a super Christian, right, if you want to have the rich Christian life, you need to add something to Christ, now, they were probably a little more crafty than that, right? Weren't putting Christ aside, weren't saying that, you, that, that Christ was not necessary for salvation, but they were saying that real fullness and real joy and real growth and real satisfaction is found in Jesus plus something, whatever that may be. I really don't think that they were saying that they needed something other than Jesus, right? This is not... This was not some big, obvious heresy. This was subtle. It was, they were arguing for a certain type of experience, a certain type of knowledge, a certain type of discipline. Instead, they they were saying that Jesus alone saves, but in a sense they were saying Jesus isn't quite enough to satisfy, or he's not quite enough to help you grow, and Jesus alone won't make you holy. Now, these two paragraphs are probably the most difficult in the book to interpret, especially to apply. So let me try to summarize what I think the argument that he is making here is. I think Paul is saying that there are teachers who are claiming that the Colossians could, could attain some heightened form of spirituality, some heightened form of holiness apart from Jesus, which means that the very heart of the teaching, even if it was unintentional, was to denigrate Jesus and to not rest and to not be satisfied in all that we have in Jesus alone. In order to achieve this elite super-Christian status, a person had all sorts of rules. The text refers to this as discipline or asceticism, severity. They were probably saying, we tell from the text, that Christians needed to abstain from certain, certain types of food. In this context, it's probably certain types of meat. Either the meat that was off limits to Jews or perhaps meat that's related to idols, but probably the Jewish regulations. They said that you probably had to abstain from strong drink, specifically wine, it seems to be religious. It seems they were saying that they had to observe the religious festivals and the holy days. 
It seems the leaders had probably come up with some list of religious rules that prohibited certain activities that the Bible does not prohibit. For example, in Mark chapter 7, Christ himself declared all meat, all food clean. Jesus himself, in his first miracle, used supernatural power to create wine. There's a crisis, they're out of wine, Jesus created wine. The festivals and the holy days, including the Sabbath, were fulfilled in Jesus, and so Christians no longer need to celebrate the holy days. In fact, I I argue that the New Testament doesn't even command Christians to worship on a certain day. Now, these are things we can relate to. Religious leaders were taking biblical ideas that had, had grounding and had context, and they were distorting them. They were adding practices, practices for spiritual extra credit. Visions, worshiping of angels, those especially. Not entirely sure what, what that means, but, but we ha- that's what we, we see in the text. We know that they were, they were referring to extreme treatment of the body and, and self-denial in extreme senses. And Paul is saying all this religious activity is missing the point. It's man-made. It's legalistic. And in fact, all it does, it doesn't get you more Jesus. It gets you less Jesus because all you're doing is puffing yourself up. You're being proud and less dependent upon Christ. If we were to really simplify this passage, which we are, we could say that it warns us against three types of dangerous religion. Three types of dangerous religion. And let's see which one you are most susceptible to. The first type is rule keeping. Got any rule keepers in here? All right. The second type would be experience seeking. And the third type would be the disciplined people, right? The extreme self-denial. If you like fancy ism words, like I do, these would, the ism words would be legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Right? But I also like the, the easy words. Okay, so let's, let's work through these briefly. The first one is rule-keeping or legalism. Now, technically, all of these are varieties of legalism. They don't break down super clean. But this is the most, uh, this is the most classic. This is good old-fashioned rule-keeping. I keep the rules, therefore I am good. Or, I keep the rules, therefore I am better than you. I mean, I wouldn't say that, but let's just be honest, right? We all, we all know this. I love how Tim Keller describes legalism. Jot, jot this down. Let this ring in your mind. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism is looking, looking to something other than Jesus in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Now, there can be varieties of legalism that say, Jesus saves me, but I need to keep rules to be accepted. All right? So there's, there's a spectrum here, and we've talked about this in the past. But that's exactly what's going on here in verse 16. Believers were being judged about their diet. 
The idea was that the Colossian believers, it seems, needed to return to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Laws that are categorized mostly in Leviticus chapter 11. Those laws included uh, making certain types of meat being off limits. We know if barbecue is off limits, this has to be a heresy, right? This has to be awful, right? So this probably not would not be what we are as tempted to, but they were prohibiting certain types of meat as off limits. And the same thing for, for alcohol. And, and in, the, in the Old Testament, the only prohibition that we see against alcohol is for the Levites, the servants of God who took specific oaths to abstain from, from strong drink. Of course, there are prohibitions all throughout the Bible uh, against drunkenness. And we could have a big discussion about this, but let's go, let's just say it like this. We, we know that God gave these dietary laws in the Old Testament context for, there were some, there were some health benefits, right? Um, which we understand a little bit more now, but there were spiritual consequences. They were to stimulate the conscience of God's people. To stimulate the conscience of God's people. They were to be a reminder to Israel that you as God's people are different. You are set apart from the world. You sinful people interact with the holy God so life cannot be normal. It has to be different. So there are all sorts of laws. And of course when Jesus came, he abolished the dietary laws. You remember, he totally offended the Pharisees. They did not like him, right? Uh, and it was on this particular point in Mark chapter 7. Listen to, to this. They could not believe Jesus' eating habits and his hand-washing habits, right? He said, he, uh, Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see, Jesus says, that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters into his heart and his stomach and is expelled. And then the text says, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul, and, and all, really chapter 8 through 10, maybe further, Paul is, is reminding the Christians at Corinth to use their liberty, to not restrict it, but to use it in such a way in regards to food, in regards to drink, specifically alcohol, we see this in Romans 14 as well, that they were to interact with these things in a way that is loving towards others. You're supposed to use food and drink in such a way that is serving your neighbor. It is not the dietary laws that bind, but the law of love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, I, I know this is a big topic that we could spend more time on, and we can't, we can't do that tonight. But let's, let's, let's keep this in perspective here, because, because of what he's doing. They're getting distracted by rules. And of course, we have to understand that there are wise dietary principles to consider, right? This does not mean that you can interact with food and drink however you want. The Bible, I mean, the Bible specifically says, 1 Corinthians 10.31, in the way you eat, 
glorify God, and the way you drink glorify God. Every drop of liquid, every calorie, every morsel of food is to be done in a way that says, Jesus is better than this. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So we've got bigger burdens, right, than what we can and can't eat. It's about the heart, right? And so, of course, there are wise dietary principles. And, of course, the same thing applies to the days. The Jews celebrated feast days and new moon celebrations, and they celebrated the Sabbath. But when Christ came, he said, I've come to fulfill all the law and the prophets. He said that in Matthew 5, 17. And, of course, we could, we could go on in detail about these things. But, but I want to get to the heart of the matter here. What is the big deal? What is the big deal about going a little bit beyond the Bible's rules? Well, Paul sees it as a big deal because it's very possible, especially for us religious folk, to find rules and miss Jesus. I talk with people all the time. And if you're making efforts to share your faith, you're going to talk with people, especially in the South, all the time. People that what they know of the Christian faith is rules, not a person. And if rules are what you know and not a person, you are not a Christian. That is not the Christian faith. That's the point of what Paul is saying in verse 17. He says all this stuff is just a shadow. Christ is is the substance. The dietary laws, the Sabbaths, the festivals, all that stuff, it all had a purpose, and the purpose was to prepare people for the coming of Christ. It was to teach them that they have a need for purity. But now Christ is here. Who in the world wants the shadow when we have the substance? If you've ever been to Yosemite Valley, it's the most amazing place I've ever been. How crazy would it be, and I know people do this, to sit in Yosemite Valley and look at pictures of Yosemite on your four-inch smartphone instead of looking up, right? The substance is Christ. In a few moments, we'll see why rule-keeping and legalism appeals to us. But for now, let's just note that the point is... Outward religious rule-keeping does not commend us to God. We should not let others pass judgment on us for exercising our Christian liberty. And isn't this such an important reminder for us? How often do we, and there's all different types of rules. We'd have to work quite a bit to think about the types of rules that we create, right, to evaluate a person's uh, religiosity or spirituality, right? We create different rules, I think, maybe, and we may not even say them. But how often do we focus on keeping rules as the measure of making ourselves holy? Or how often in your personal life do you focus on keeping rules to make you feel good before God? Is it, do you feel better before God when you've read your Bible five days in a row? Do you feel better before him than you did if you didn't, right? Do you feel like you've got a little bit more street cred, right? I remember as a teenager, I struggled so much that when I, when I would sin, I felt like I had to wait for some like period of time before I could go before God again. As if my ability to obey is the reason God liked me and wanted to talk to me. Rules as the measure of our holiness. And you see, here's the thing. If you use rules to justify... What's Jesus do? 
What's his, what's his work? You don't have a need for Christ. In verses 18 and 19, Paul addresses another variation of this problem, and that's experience-seeking. We could say mysticism. Apparently, the religious leaders were insisting that in order to gain the highest levels of spirituality, the Colossians needed to practice asceticism, which I think in this context is referring to a false type of humility, right? Lowering oneself in order to get attention. Worshiping angels and having religious visions. And we don't have too much time to explore this tonight, and that's okay because I think we can get straight to the gist here. The focus was on experience, not a person. The focus was on a spiritual experience, not Jesus Christ. The word asceticism here in this context is is referring to people who were proud of how humble they were. You ever interacted with that dynamic? I do, in the mirror, quite a bit. I remember reading a line from David Copperfield five years ago. Uriah Heep, who's like the very essence of the arrogant, disgusting kind of man, he's bragging about how humble he is, right? And this is where Dickens is is brilliant in this book. But he says... uh, He's bragging about it. He says, oh no, Mr. Copperfield. I'm a very, he says, humble. I'm a very humble person. In fact, I'm the humblest person going to the party. Right? But it's false humility. The same kind of humility that goes on and on and on about details of spiritual visions to make other people feel a certain way, right? And Paul cuts straight to the matter. He says, they are puffed up. They need they are puffed up. I'll just, say, I'll just say that. They need to expel that air, right? There's some stuff going on there in the, in, in, in the text, right? That, they were proud. They were puffed up without reason. They used their religion to make themselves feel good and to make themselves feel better than other people. Do we ever use religion like that? Oh, my goodness. But the Bible is very clear. True religion and pride do not mix. They are antithetical to one another. What does God do to the proud? Opposes the proud. You have a magnet, right? And if they are opposites, they are going in the opposite. Is that, is that right? Right? There are two positives. Whatever, right? Two magnets that are wrong, right? If they're going in the opposite direction. Pride repulses God. God opposes the crowd, the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride and religion, pride and faith are like oil and water. The next verse here in verse 19 describes why this doesn't work. Because they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth from God. Think about this. Pride is depending on self for nourishment. It's the exact opposite of depending on Christ. Every form of pride is in its essence, I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I'm better than you. It's the exact opposite of the essence of being in Christ, of being in the vine. 
is saying Christ is not enough. I don't need to be righteous on my own. I, don't, I, I can be righteous on my own. I, I don't need interesting spiritual experiences. I don't need to keep certain rules. Instead, for me, for the Christian, Christ is enough. He is sufficient. By faith, we are united to Christ. He is our very life. Remember, we've died. And so now, in order to have life, we have to be hidden where? In Christ, who is our very life. Which means that all my spiritual life is found in and through him. Without him, I am bankrupt and empty. And pride severs us from Christ because it foolishly acts like we don't need him, even for a few moments. Faith, on the other hand, by its very nature, is dependent. It is constantly dependent. It is a desperate clinging. It is a hanging on to. It is, it is what my daughter did to my leg the other day. She grabbed it, and I was walking, and I was pulling her, right? She was not going to let me go. That's what the text says, holding fast to the head. If I don't get nourishment from Christ, I die because I got no other backup plan. And there's no other source. Faith recognizes that since all life is found in Christ, that means all growth and all nourishment is found in him, the source of life. The text talks, it gives us a description here, a beautiful description of our union with Christ. Picking up from two weeks ago. There's really only one growth strategy in the Christian life. Do you see that? It says the whole body grows By being connected to the head. The only way to grow in the Christian life is to abide in Christ. To dwell in him. To look to him. To depend on him. Every one of us grows in the same way. You may go to the Women's Gospel Coalition this week. You may have great Bible times. You may use the CBR. You may not use the CBR. You may fast a lot. Whatever it is, if you grow, it is because you are connected in Christ and finding nourishment from Him. So brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, I know you want to grow. if, If you're a Christian, you have to want to grow. It, It may not be very strong right now, or it may be very strong. But let me plead with you. Don't look to man made rules to grow. And don't even look to your own discipline. This is my struggle. I focus on my own discipline to grow. Instead, look to a person. Look to a person. I want you to flip in your, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want, you to, I want you to see this. I think this is a good spot. We may not get through this all tonight. That's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. Does everyone see that? Look, look what Paul says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, look at that again. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, as we see Christ, what happens? 
we are being transformed click by click by click. One degree of glory to the next. You could, I don't recommend it, you could cut your entire yard with a pair of scissors. One blade of grass at a time, right? Think about that. As you look to Christ, every time you are being transformed. It is happening. It may not seem fast, but it is happening. That's the pattern. As you see him and delight in him, you change. You grow. You want to change? Look upon Christ. Look to him. And as we see the glory of God, you, we as Christians have eyes to like it. It makes us happy and excited and satisfying. As we see the glory of Christ, we are transformed. Sin never looks good beside Jesus. And the more we look at him, the less appealing the sin is. The more we look at him, the more we set our mind on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the less we're going to look to the things of the world. Jesus wins beauty contests now. Look upon him. I love how the CBR I love, one of the things I like about the CBR is it's got those, you know, those four boxes. And box number three is the connection to Jesus. It's that Christocentric box where no matter where you are, even if you're in the weird stuff in Jeremiah, we're asking questions, what do we see about Jesus' salvation? What does this text do to help us anticipate the work of Christ or see the work of Christ or look back on the work of Christ or look ahead to how he's going to finish it? Because the whole Bible is about Jesus everywhere. It's not about laws, not about regulations, not about rules, not about Sunday school attendance. The whole law, the whole book is about a person. And so every day when you come to the text, no matter what the text is, the point is not to fill out the boxes. The point is not to get a good impact point. The point is definitely not to check off a box. The point is to see Jesus that is the litmus test. How long do you need to read? Until you see Jesus. And until he dazzles you. Because I'll tell you what. If Jesus does not dazzle you in the morning, you're going to look for something else really fast. And there's a lot of really crummy substitutes out there. Be dazzled by Christ. We can be tempted in our Bible reading to focus on our ability to obey the rules or our inability to obey the rules. Have you struggled with that? So much of my life, I read the Bible and I'm like, my goodness, I don't do that. Oh man, I don't do this. Just be tenderhearted. I'm not tenderhearted. Ah, what a bad day, right? Instead, the whole point is be tenderhearted. Uh-oh, I'm not very tenderhearted. I need Christ. Look, there's Christ. Look how he treats me. Oh, now I can be tenderhearted. Do you see? Look upon Christ. Don't focus on your ability to obey, your inability to obey. Don't focus on the rules themselves. And definitely don't focus on how your spouse is doing with the rules. Right? Have you heard that in Sunday school? Right? Let's apply this verse to someone else. Right? I give you permission that if you hear that in Sunday school, just to raise your hand and say, 
we don't need to do that. Let's apply that to us, right? Instead of the church down the road or the Democrats or whatever, right? Back to Colossians 2.19. You'll notice, of course, that since the growth comes from God, who gets the credit? God gets the credit. You see a person that's growing in grace? Praise God. Tell them about it, but praise God for it. I would encourage you to, even before you go to bed, if, you've got, if you're going to interact with someone else tonight, look for a way in their life that you're seeing them grow and tell them, hey, brother, and sis- brother or sister, I see God is doing this in your life. I can tell. I praise God for his work in your life. I would love to be more like you. I'd love to be more servant-hearted like you. I know that would make Christ happy. Thank you for the example that you're setting, right? What, what's happening if you do that? First of all, you're giving God glory for work he's doing and you're encouraging a believer and you're humbling yourself before the Lord as well. The nourishment and the life is from God and so God gets the credit. The growth is from God and so he deserves the praise. We'll save the third one for for some other time, but let's think about it like this. Let's do one final application. If growth comes from God, and if growth does not come from rule keeping and and overly focused on discipline, right? There's certainly a place for discipline. We'll say that for next time. If growth comes from God, what kind of prayers do you think you could pray? Do you ever struggle with seeing an area in your life that, that you're weak in? A sin that you're continually entangled in? A desire that you just cannot get to wake up? You struggle with Bible reading? You've tried, it's just not coming? Your temper's not getting better? You have an unhealthy relationship with food or drink? It's just not getting better? You feel stuck? What do you think you could ask God for? God, if all growth comes from you, can you please help me grow? Perhaps that is the primary step that you need to take. Praying and pleading with God to grow you. To move in your heart by his spirit to prompt you and to compel you to obey. That you would be dazzled by Christ in such a way that food would not be your primary thing. Or that some idea of a perfect marriage would not be your primary focus. Or some discipline would not be your primary focus. But that Christ would be so interesting and so exciting to you. That you would grow. There's a song. I think, I think this is a Sovereign Grace song. That's how, I, that's how I was introduced to it. The song's called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. Let me just read the first stanza to you. It says, I ask the Lord that I might grow. In faith and in love and in every grace. More of him, more, uh, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Ask God to grow you. What do you think he's going to do with that prayer? I'd like to close this tonight in just a brief time of prayer and just give you the opportunity to ask God to help you grow. Let's take just a moment of silence and then I'll close this.